0: Slowly, but surely, the sea is warming. New Zealand is literally in hot water. We're
1: experiencing severe marine heatwaves.
0: Coastal sea temperatures around Aotearoa
2: are well above what's normal. That's according to NIWA, which has reported marine heatwave conditions in all regions. We're seeing temperatures as much as... Three to four degrees Celsius
0: above average. Might be good news in the short term if you're a beach baby or an ocean swimmer. So is it time to hit the beach? But the more detrimental effects of this are starting to show themselves. Scientists say it is now clear the mass bleaching of native sea sponges in Fiordland is likely the largest event of its type in the world. And a new report from the Environment Ministry starkly lays out the potential threats existential, economic and cultural.
1: Three quarters of identified taonga species are threatened or close to threatened
0: by extinction. The most
2: disturbing part of the report on the marine environment is the things that are in part beyond our control, which is changing sea temperatures caused by climate change.
0: I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail, staff journalist Amber Allott and Otago University marine scientist Rob Smith on marine heatwaves the devastating economic and environmental damage these can wreak over time, and the scale of the task that lies ahead. Rob Smith is a marine scientist at Otago University. He spoke to me minutes after stepping off a research vessel in the Otago Harbour. Does it ever get a wee bit depressing being a marine scientist, seeing what is happening to the ocean?
3: Yeah,
2: it, it does a little bit at times. It's quite confronting
0: when you see some
2: of the projections of ocean temperature for the coming century and for what we might be facing around New Zealand. But knowledge is power and knowing what's coming up gives you know us as scientists and communities around New Zealand a chance to respond positively to that and try to make positive changes so that we're more resilient.
0: We have had this new report come out, Our Marine Environment 2022, and one of the big themes in this report is the idea that the temperature of the ocean is increasing and that heat waves are becoming more frequent and more severe. I wonder whether you can place that into context for me because a lot of people might associate the ocean temperature rising with happy days... I am going to go swimming this summer and it's going to feel nice. It's a bit more alarming than that.
2: When we talk about a marine heatwave, it's an extended period of extremely warm ocean temperatures. And these events can last for several months and extend over several thousand square kilometres. Now, scientifically, a marine heatwave is defined when the ocean temperature at a given location is in the top 10% of the temperatures typically recorded during that time of year, uh, for five days or more. So by definition, these are extreme temperature events in the top 10% of what we typically observe. So this is more than a nice warm day at the beach.
0: Do we know much about what causes marine heatwaves?
2: Yeah, great question. So marine heatwaves can be caused by a range of factors. So at a local scale, these factors include ocean currents, which can build up areas of extremely warm water uh, by warming through the ocean surface from the atmosphere. And they can be caused by reduced wind speeds, which inhibit the vertical mixing of cooler waters towards the ocean surface. Now, at a larger national scale, the likelihood of marine heat waves is also influenced by large-scale weather and climate patterns such as the El Nino and La Nina phenomena. Now, the relative importance of those individual factors varies between events as well as regionally. So that makes marine heatwaves a real challenge to predict.
0: Is there much variation in the mean temperature of the ocean from country to country? So, for example, if you were to take the mean coastal temperature uh, around New Zealand and compare it to the mean coastal temperature of somewhere, I don't know, at the, near the equator. W- would there be a significant variation between those two?
2: Yeah, we get really quite substantial disparities in temperature in the ocean. I could give an example around New Zealand, I guess. Um, at the moment, the water temperatures around the South Island of New Zealand will probably be sat somewhere around... 13 degrees Celsius or so, and around bits of the upper North Island, uh, we'll probably be pushing 18, perhaps. um Wow. 17, 18. If we head off to parts of northern Australia, we'd be up above the 20s. And then you head out off um, the coast of Papua New Guinea in the western tropical Pacific, uh, you could easily hit 30 degrees. Gee.
0: Okay, that's because that, that's fascinating. Because I imagine that that would vary as well from winter to summer, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. You have quite a large um, seasonal cycle in temperature in uh, temperate or mid-latitude oceans, of which New Zealand is exposed to. So we see down here in the waters around Dunedin a seasonal cycle of temperature somewhere around um, eight or nine degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess what I'm – so what I'm getting at there, I suppose, is the idea that there is a normal range that uh, we would expect ocean temperatures to sort of be within. And within that range, a certain ecosystem sort of develops and flourishes, is the worry, is the danger that the temperature is changing too dramatically for that normal range. Therefore, the biodiversity that exists and is used to that normal range can't deal with it and dies.
2: It's not necessarily that it dies, that can happen. But when we talk about these, these marine heat waves, they are by definition an extreme event. So they have a discrete start and end point. But we know from these previous marine heat waves that they can have devastating effects on marine ecosystems. Now, they can, for example, as you just described, trigger widespread die offs of marine species. That can come about through factors including marine heat waves pushing species above their thermal tolerance or through reducing their food availability or quality.
0: Seawater temperatures around the South Island turned almost subtropical during the 2017-18 heatwave.
2: And the marine species that are impacted can include everything from marine vegetation. Here we might be thinking kelp forests, coral, seagrass meadows. The
0: kelp that provides habitat for uh, fish and other marine species died off. Through to shellfish,
2: fish and seabirds.
0: Fish normally seen in subtropical waters arrived as far south as bluff, in numbers unheard of. Farmed salmon failed to thrive. And also marine mammals. And surfers, it's reported, could wear board shorts instead of wetsuits on some of Dunedin's famous surf beaches.
2: But marine heatwaves can also cause shifts in the abundance and the distribution of marine life. And I could give an example of recreational or commercial fish stocks. Mm. We've seen around the New Zealand coast in the last couple of summers subtropical fish species turning up in unusual places. We've been looking at the immigration of tropical and subtropical fishes into New Zealand uh, for, for the last 30 odd years and uh, every every time we get a warm summer we get a lot of larvae coming down from places like Norfolk Island and Lord Howe Island. At the moment the, uh, the animals coming in uh, are in relatively small numbers and uh, probably not going to have any impact uh, but over time if uh, global warming continues we'd expect Expect to see more and more of them coming, more of them surviving and uh, eventually breeding in New Zealand. Or traditionally fished stocks being unusually absent from their normal breeding or fishing grounds. So it's not just die-offs of marine species. Marine heat waves can also be disruptive for many other reasons. Previous marine heat waves have notably led to the need to restrict or close aquaculture facilities um, due to the outbreak of disease um, or harmful algal blooms. These periods of extremely warm ocean temperature can also enable invasive species to spread into regions and put pressure on or wipe out native species. Some of these ecosystem impacts can be quite abrupt in the case of a fish stock Um, moving from a typical area or a harmful algal bloom developing. Whereas in the case of mass mortality events, it might take a few weeks to months of exposure to elevated temperature and heat stress until the impacts becomes evident through the food chain. Mm. But more than anything, marine heat waves are a serious concern for our ocean life around New Zealand that has evolved to thrive in cooler seas.
0: Of course, we humans, we are not among those creatures which have evolved to thrive in cooler seas. We are terrestrial mammals. And so the changing ocean environment, existentially threatening though it might be in the long term, might not be right at the top of our agendas just now. In fact, it might not really be above the Sunday grocery shop. But these changes do have a real economic impact and Rightly or wrongly, stuff that hits us in the pocket does tend to get our attention. I asked Stuff Environment reporter Amber Allett about one of the more dramatic recent examples of this, which happened at the start of this year.
1: We had about 40% um, of the farmed salmon in the Marlborough Sounds um, died due to the high water temperatures.
3: An ongoing ocean heat wave spiked ocean temperatures five degrees above normal in parts of the country this year.
1: I think New Zealand king salmon actually recorded a $73 million loss last
3: year. And it forced the country's biggest salmon exporter, New Zealand king salmon, to lay off more than 100 staff and close farms in the Marlborough Sounds. And, you know, they ended up with thousands and thousands of dead fish and landfill. After the heat killed 1,300 tonnes of fish.
1: Marlborough produces about fifty percent of New Zealand's exported aquaculture products, mostly mussels and salmon. Mm. And this you know that's a huge blow to a massively valuable industry.
0: And the economic impact isn't just limited to seafood.
1: There was a new study that was published in August, it was led by Massey and Canterbury University researchers, which used climate modelling to predict uh, blue and sperm whale ranges by the end of the century under different climate change scenarios and basically what it found was that many areas around New Zealand would end up becoming unsuitable for whales as global sea surface temperatures continue to rise mm. and you've got to remember marine heat waves happen on top of that and really what's going to happen is they're going to end up seeking refuge further south, you know, places around the sub-Antarctic islands perhaps just one thing that the study pointed out is that sperm whales in New Zealand are critical for the tourism industry and local economies for places like Kaikoura. You know, the whale watch industry, as the study pointed out, may be at potential risk. There will just be fewer and less reliable sightings of sperm whales. I did actually end up speaking to Whale Watch Kaikoura's spokesman. You know, this is obviously this um, iwi-owned operation up there, in a region really where 30% of that district's workforce is employed in tourism. And he, um, Thomas Carr, who said, you know, the mere thought that if change really is not implemented or effective to control the warming of the oceans, in a relatively short time, finding the whales that have made part of their lives off the coast could just be a thing of the past. And he just said it was devastating. You know, it was really sobering for them. What he said is that they've built this tourism industry around these whales, their livelihoods and those of the whole wider community are connected to this balance, really, in the seas. And I mean, obviously, the warming of the oceans isn't limited to the impact on whales. It's just much, much wider reaching. I mean, if you think about 30% of the workforce of an entire region, you know, it just really causes you to wonder, you know, what other industry in Kaikoura could absorb that many people if in, you know, as soon as 80 years from now, it's unreliable whether you'd be able to find a sperm whale off the Kaikoura coastline. And, I mean, it's a similar issue with Marlborough and salmon. Mm. MB says, for example, that aquaculture is a huge regional employer in places like Havelock up in Marlborough, and there are limited other employment opportunities up there. And, I mean, while, you know, that people look for the solutions for both of these things, you know, which I'm happy to go into if you'd want, it's just a struggle to see, you know, what this is going to mean for all of those people who rely on this for their jobs, you know, for their source of income.
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned that there's a neat segue, you've done this before, haven't you, um, into the sort of solutions element of, of it, because there is a lot of doom and gloom here. Um, But is there hope? Do we have a plan or are we a bit sort of dazed rabbit in the headlights at this point?
1: It's a complicated question in a way. So just to go back to those two case studies, for example, I mean, with Marlborough's Salmon, um, New Zealand King Salmon, the company up there have actually applied to build an open ocean farm, you know, seven kilometres from the shore out in the Cook Strait.
3: The government sees the aquaculture industry, which employs about 3,000 people mainly in the regions, as a good bet. Low emissions protein with huge international market potential. The company's chief executive, Grant Rosewarn, says if the government had written bespoke legislation letting it farm in open waters, it could have sidestepped the lengthy RMA process and the blow to its business this summer. When you've got a climate change situation where there is a known solution and it can be done, it's just frustrating that we can't make progress.
1: It would be called Blue Endeavour, and I think that they are working through finding out whether that will be approved or not later this year. And then, of course, there have been people looking into whether we need to shift species up there, you know, whether we should be farming a different species, potentially, that's more adapted to warmer temperatures. Mm. I think I'd seen um, snapper floated about, so like the idea of farmed snapper would be potentially quite interesting. And then, obviously, just for farmed salmon in general, um, I think it was just yesterday, (laughs) Mount Cook Alpine salmon has secured MPI support to hopefully build what they call New Zealand's first sustainable land-based salmon farm. Planned for near Twizel. The proposal was unveiled yesterday and the government has committed $16.7 million to it. Mount Cook Alpine Salmon says the farm will be waste-free, returning all the water used in the farm back to source in the same state it was taken. You know, be completely inland based and that obviously have a lot more control over temperature and things like that. Um, I mean, for the tourism, it's a more complicated question. And one thing that that study did point out is that blue whales, you know, could start to be seen more around the South Island in those climate change scenarios. There are currently, as far as I'm aware, no commercial blue whale watching operations in New Zealand. But potentially that could be a thing we start looking into in the future. I mean, in terms of the climate solutions, that's really the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, what we probably need to be doing in terms of climate change. And, you know, you hear a lot about the obvious things, you know, the fossil fuels that we burn into for energy or using for transportation, And I think on that front, you know, we can make a difference through our choices as individuals, but we really need government to come to the table and build infrastructure, you know, to help make these changes in our own lives easy and accessible and just possible to incorporate into everyday life. But I also think that our activities in the ocean matter as well. I think last year it was I wrote about a study which found that seabed trawling releases more carbon dioxide than air travel Mm. as an industry. And really this ties back into the whole report. Um, The seafloor is just this huge carbon sink. And this report calculated that bottom trawling, where fishing boats will drag weighted nets along the seabed to scoop up fish, causes a huge amount of carbon to be released. It was actually creating a gigaton, like a billion metric tons of carbon emissions each year. Whereas in 2019, before the pandemic, like the whole global aviation industry only created an estimated 918 million tonnes of CO2. Wow. So, I mean, really, it's thinking about what we can do in the sea as well as our choices on land.
2: The rate of warming that we're seeing at present um, in the atmosphere in the ocean is unprecedented on a geological timescale. So the rate of warming is one of the things that's really concerning because that rate of change can outstrip the natural ability for organisms to adapt to a changing climate. If the rate of warming, which we as a society have caused in the ocean and in the atmosphere, if that rate outstrips the adaptive potential of marine organisms um, which it is doing so
0: we're in trouble that's it for today i'm emile donovan the detail is public interest journalism funded through new zealand on air and produced by newsroom for rnz you can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform today's episode was engineered by jeremy ansell and produced by Sarah robson Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer, and thanks to Rob Smith and Amber Allett. Matewa.